I want people to go home and say, Honey, you won't believe what I saw at the game tonight. The issue of concussions is a fairly divisive one at times amongst the football community. When you look at the city and the market size and the TV shares and the demographic, it was kind of a sleeping giant. Welcome to the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast, your home for the leading B2B content in the world of sports and entertainment. I'm your host, Tyler Kern, and each week we'll take a look at the people and innovations that are driving the industry forward. Let's go. Welcome to the first episode of Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I'm really excited about what we're going to be able to do here with this show and with this podcast, bringing you the leading info and uh, analysis in the world of sports and entertainment from a B2B perspective. Today's episode is titled Predicting and Preventing Injuries, and it features an interview with Dr. Phil Wagner. He's the CEO and founder of Sparta Science, and they're using a simple and easily repeatable test to collect data and predict potential injuries down the road. After that, I talked to Matt Schmidt. He's the CEO of Iron Neck, and they're working to reduce concussions by encouraging athletes to strengthen the muscles around their neck. Uh, But coming up before that, I'm going to tell you about something I learned this weekend that I found interesting I want to bring you, followed by the Sports and Entertainment Minutes brought to you by Sam Mosher and our news and analysis segment with resident data expert at MarketScale, T.C. Riley. All of that is coming up next on the first episode of the MarketScale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. All right, I want to begin each week's show by telling you about something I learned recently. And this week, I want to hone in on that Alex Smith injury for the Washington Redskins. With a little over seven minutes remaining in the third quarter of their Week 11 matchup with the Houston Texans, Washington quarterback Alex Smith was sacked by Kareem Jackson and J.J. Watt. His ankle bent awkwardly, breaking both of the bones in his leg pretty obviously. You could see it on the field. And if you haven't seen the replay, unless you've got a strong stomach, I don't know that I would recommend going back and watching it. But it caused many to harken back to a play uh, where another Washington quarterback, Joe Theismann, suffered a very similar injury. It turns out that the injuries don't just look similar, but they actually happened on the same day, 33 years apart. And the eerie similarities don't stop there, though, as the final score of both games ended up being 23-21, to not a score that you see terribly often in the NFL, although 33 years ago, Washington won the game, whereas this past Sunday, they lost. And it kind of caused me to wonder, you know, losing a key player like your starting quarterback can really be tough for a team to overcome, especially late on in the season when you've got playoff implications looming. And so as I think about this loss for the Washington Redskins and losing their starting quarterback, it made me wonder how much money does an NFL team make that makes the playoffs opposed to teams that don't make the playoffs? Do they bring in extra revenue from ticket sales? Do they bring in more ad revenue? Things along those lines. Well, as it turns out, the NFL is actually very adherent to a strict system of revenue sharing. So teams that make the playoffs actually send all of their ticket revenue back to the league, meaning they don't really keep a dime of it and it gets distributed out evenly to all of the rest of the teams in the NFL. So a team like the New England Patriots, a team that makes the playoffs every year and are perennial Super Bowl contenders, don't actually bring in more money due to that because the NFL actually keeps so much money and sends it all back out to all of the other teams. So teams get a stipend to cover expenses for each game, uh, but really a team that makes the Super Bowl every season doesn't end up seeing more revenue, seeing more money than teams that don't. I thought that was really fascinating and something that I learned this week. All right, coming up next, we're going to bring you the news and information from around the industry brought to you by MarketScale. This week, bringing you the news and information minutes is Sam Mosier. Sam, take it away. These are your sports and entertainment news minutes brought to you by MarketScale. Apple has made another strategic move in its play for original content. According to CNBC, Apple is entering a multi-year agreement with Oscar-winning production company A24 to produce original films. A24 is a critical darling, responsible for many Academy Award-winning films such as Room, Lady Bird, and 2017 Best Picture, Moonlight. A24 joins other creators like Steven Spielberg, Oprah, and Sesame Workshop under Apple's umbrella of original content. CNBC reports Apple will begin giving away free movies and TV shows to device owners sometime next year as a way to increase brand loyalty. Variety says details on the deal are slim. It will include multiple films over several years, but it is unclear if these films will be released in theaters or just exclusive to Apple devices. The cost of the deal is also under wraps. 2019 will be a crowded year for original content on streaming services. In addition to existing platforms like Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu, Apple's original content will launch the same calendar year as Disney's planned service, Disney+. But that's not the only news in streaming this week. In the world of sports, streaming service DAZN, known for its focus on MMA and boxing, has made a deal with Major League Baseball. The three-year deal, which reportedly cost $300 million, will start next season. 
According to Engadget, DAZN will broadcast a show each weeknight with live cut-ins to the biggest plays and moments from games across the league. USA Today says these broadcasts may resemble NFL Red Zone, which is an attractive prospect to young baseball fans without traditional pay TV packages. For now, the deal does not include full live games. DAZN will also offer on-demand MLB content in a highlight show on weekends. More details about DAZN's MLB content is expected before the next season starts in March 2019. DAZN's MLB deal comes only two months after the service launched in the U.S. in September 2018. Engadget reports DAZN is looking to include content for all sports fans. It launched in Japan, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland in 2016. It streams live MLB games in those countries. The service is also available in Canada and Italy. But that isn't our only sports story today, and this next one is about ketchup. You heard that right, ketchup. In a recent ESPN.com profile, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes confessed his love for ketchup. When asked how his life changed after becoming famous, Mahomes said he now eats much less ketchup. He used to get bottles of it for his birthday, he even puts it on his steak. But fearing public outcry, Mahomes said he is wary to ask for a bottle in public. But Mahomes may never have to ask for ketchup again. Well, that is if he can beat a challenge put out by Heinz. Heinz tweeted Thursday, telling Mahomes he will receive a lifetime supply of ketchup if he throws 57 touchdown passes this season. According to CBS Sports, Mahomes currently stands at 31 touchdown passes in 10 games. He is on track for about 50 and will have to average more than 4 touchdown passes per game to beat Heinz's challenge. I'm Sam Mosier, and these have been your Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Minutes. All right, joining me now on the Sports and Entertainment Podcast for a little bit of news and analysis is T.C. Riley. He's the Director of Analytics here at MarketScale. T.C., thanks for joining me today, man. Absolutely. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How are you today? Doing terrific. So you're a big sports fan. I am a massive sports fan. But that more and more has been intersecting with the world of analytics. Before those two worlds used to be, they couldn't have been further apart, right? You had the nerds and the jocks, but now... Now, a lot of that is coming together, which has to be an exciting thing for you, I would guess. Absolutely, yeah. Two of my biggest passions that previously, like you said, didn't really intersect at all. Um, uh, Very uh, conflicting cultures almost. Um, But in the last, uh, I'd say, you know, depending on the sport, depending on what exactly you're talking about, the last 15, 20 years, especially in the last like three, four years, I think, um, there have been some massive... uh, a crossover between those two. Um, and I love it again. It, it's my two biggest passions. So it's awesome to see them come together. So where did it start for you? Where did you first start to see the blending of the two uh, of your two passions? Baseball's always been um, better, I would say, at analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone probably heard of Moneyball um, and the Oakland Athletics when they went through. Um, so you, you saw it back then, but even further back than that, baseball's been really good about tracking stats. You know, you can look at baseball stats going back to the you know 1920s, early 1900s. Um, things that maybe weren't tracked as closely across other sports. So you could say that, um, but I think that Moneyball era um, that kind of started in baseball, and then that's kind of slowly bled into other sports, but especially um, basketball and football in the last five, ten years, you've really seen it um, become a driving force for organizations and the decisions they make. Did you read Moneyball when it came out? And just Oh, absolutely, yeah. Hey, that's, it was one of those things that I'd kind of heard about it. It was going on with Billy Bean and all, um, but I, I didn't know the details of it. I just knew the general principle. When I got into it and saw what he was doing, I mean, he was well ahead of his time. He, he They were doing things that no one else was, and they were able to field a competitive team in a tiny market with a pretty low budget based on this, um, again, uh, very futuristic at that time analysis. And now with the invent i guess like the the added popularity of things like statcast you have launch angles and you have spin rates and that sort of thing it adds a whole nother level of sports nerdery that uh that's available exactly and that's where you've uh, as it's come into those other sports you've seen baseball take a massive leap forward from the general tracking of baseline statistics to the um truly high level analysis with exactly like you're talking about the spin rate of you know a curveball and how different that can make it you know uh, jump off the bat and come out of the pitcher's hand and um, the launch angles and the exit velocities and all these kind of things that technology progressing has allowed us to more accurately track this, which has allowed us to perform that analysis. So I think that's been another kind of big leap forward as technology's advanced. And when it comes to football, basketball, some of these other sports, soccer even, you're getting more into like the player tracking side of things. And so you're able to kind of measure certain things about performance that maybe you weren't able to measure in the past. And so I think that's going to help 
other sports take off, maybe in the same way that we've seen baseball take off in the last 15, 20 years? Absolutely, yeah. It's really cool to be able to see all these. You know, they're uh, they're tracking the, the kick returner on the kickoff, um, his max speed and his top speed and stuff like yeah. that. Whereas previously you'd say, wow, that guy's fast. Now you know, okay, he had a peak speed of, you know, 23 miles an hour um, within eight steps of getting the ball and things like that. And, and being able to get that high-level calculation and high-level, um, I guess, data capture has allowed for higher-level data analysis um, since w- with data analysis, one of the biggest things is the more data you have, again, if you're able to keep it together, typically the better you are. So as more and more data points become available, the way that you can kind of manipulate those, use those, and analyze those has exponentially increased as well. So you're mentioning um, kind of some of the things that that help in data collection and that sort of thing. What's the biggest challenge that, that sports and, and that, that teams are facing as they collect all this data? Is it assigning meaning to it? Is it uh, assigning a, a level of reliability? to it? What are, what are the challenges teams are facing these days? Absolutely, yeah. One of the things is data overload. That's uh, a lot of companies are experiencing that. This big data wave is terrific, um, the ability to process that. However, um, data is really, really hard to uh, kind of manage if you have too many data points across too many data sets and kind of you're not able to correlate all these different data points that you're getting. Um, and I think that's especially true in uh, sports where uh, you mentioned at the beginning, there's kind of been this resistance in the old school mindset of sports um, to truly diving into analytics and sports. Um, So now uh, there's a lot of almost teaching that has to be done with some of those guys that are at the head of these organizations that previously didn't have this about how you use it, what you use. Yes, you can have a team that analyzes it. They even have struggles trying to figure out what I need to look at, you know, what really matters, what doesn't really matter. But then being able to translate that to the actual um, executive side of things is another struggle that they're overcoming. Yeah, definitely. So what's, what's coming next? What do you look down the pipeline and say, this is what excites me about what's coming next for sports and for analytics. Yeah, so one of the best things I think I can um, describe is actually, I'll use an example, what um, NBC and AWS um, have come together and they're doing some kind of interesting next-gen stats um, during the broadcast this year, and two in particular that stand out that kind of open up my mind to what's next um, is the uh, uh, percentage calculator, I'll call it, they have where um, late in a game you got fourth and one you know, at the opponent's 30, do you run it, do you kick it, Do you? what do you do, and they can immediately kind of analyze and say if they make the first down here's their chance of winning if they don't here's their chance if they kick it here's their chance yeah. being able to immediately see that and have it go from something where maybe you're just constructing your team or your roster based on analytics to you actually making in-game split decisions with that um, the other really cool thing they're doing this kind of mimics baseball a little bit is um, this year they have a Sunday night football kick tracker mm-hmm. that tells you what the angle is what the apex is um, and how good um, how I'm sorry how far the field goal would have been good for from. So yes, he made the 50-yard field goal, but actually he could have made it from 62. Things like that where you're getting this immediate analysis that immediately is going to feed back into a coach saying, okay, that last kick, he would have made it from 61. If I have that 56-yarder, maybe I'm going to send him out there when I wouldn't have based on what I've seen and statistically know what he can do so far this game. That's pretty awesome. So I know you're a UT football fan. I am. Hook em horns. Uh, what what piece of advice would you give your football team this season to uh, ensure that they win out the rest of the season and maybe get to the Big 12 title game? So uh, luckily, they're setting up pretty good now. We've yeah. got to we control our own destiny, beat Kansas. Um, should be something we could do, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, we've uh, we've stubbed our toe in that one in the past. Um, I, I think the biggest thing they need to do is they have two um, monsters outside, and Colin Johnson and Lil Jordan Humphrey, and um, throw the ball to them over and over and over and over and over. Um, you, you can't go wrong with that. And they're, uh, the average yards per play, if we're going to throw one stat in there um, from that, the eye test kind of tells you, but the chunk plays that they're getting. That's been the biggest difference when you look at UT the last almost decade at this point is we haven't had that explosive chunk play offense that you've seen around the rest of the Big 12. Um, OU this year, Baylor in the last 10 years, you've seen it a lot. Tech, for instance. Um, being able to translate those big chunk plays is getting those bigger scores up on the scoreboard, which is, frankly, in the Big 12, you got to put up 50 if you want to win. That's the way it works. That is the way it works. Even the best teams like OU have, a, have just abysmal defenses. Yes, it's, uh, it, it's I, I sit there every weekend and debate with myself watching, you know, let's say a Big Ten te- a game versus a Big 12 game. And yes, I think the Big 12 offense is further ahead. But um, the question is, is our defense worse or our offense better? You know, it's it's one of those. And it's probably a little bit of both. But um, it makes for much more exciting football than a, a 6-3 final score when it's, uh, you know, 58-55 to 55 or something. Yeah, so. that's true. 
And uh, also, offense is being better and defense is being worse. It's kind of led to more people going for it on fourth down, which I think is really exciting. Just kind of as you weigh the risk-reward, it's another analytics uh, thing that, that has really come out recently is that the risk-reward uh, going for it on fourth down is normally much more beneficial than, than not going for it. And going for two also can be uh, can be very beneficial. Absolutely. Those two exactly right there. Going for it on fourth and short and then going for the two-point conversion. Um, especially the uh, – that's it's kind of a base calculation, the expected points per um, – now that NFL rates for two-point conversions are hovering above 50%, yeah. um, that's you're you know you're going to miss a couple kicks. So the the max you could get there is you know one point per turn. Really, it's like 0.99 something with you know the missed extra points. If you're converting over 50%, the stats say you are expected to score more if you go for two every time. And obviously, there is a little bit of you know um, understanding the game. And just because the numbers tell you that this is the way it should be, there is that you know we'll call it the eye test sure. um, of the uh, established coach and what he wants to do but um, yeah there's been guys if you go back 20 years who have been in high school kind of doing this they they only onside yeah. kick they don't punt they um, and I think there's times when they take that to a little too far when you got you know fourth and 25 on your own 15 maybe it's it's time to dust off that punter um, but in general it, it's interesting to see that hey the numbers say this and if if the data is proving that you're much more likely to win if you go for it versus the marginal decrease you have in your um, winning likelihood if you were to punt it and just try and hold, hey, uh, let the numbers drive you. Go for it. Turns out we were playing Madden correct all along. That is exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> who knew? Who knew? That is TC Riley. He's the director of analytics here at MarketScale. TC, thanks for the time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, coming up next, I caught up with Dr. Phil Wagner. He's the CEO and founder of Sparta Science. Sparta Science has created a series of tests involving force plates that they say can identify potential risk of injury as well as strengths and weaknesses in athletes. They're used by organizations like the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA and the Colorado Rockies in Major League Baseball. And what the Sparta Scan does is it's revolutionized the way teams can test their players and predict potential injury issues down the road. I caught up with Dr. Wagner at the USA Sports Analytics and Technology Conference in Dallas, Texas. We had to duck out of a noisy conference hall into a little side room to conduct the interview so the audio quality isn't quite what it normally is, but the information is still fascinating. If you're interested in hearing how a jump test on a force plate can predict potential UCL issues in the arm of a pitcher, you'll want to hear what he has to say. I started off by asking him about Sparta and how they got their start. So Sparta Science is a platform for injury reduction and performance uh, amongst everybody. We actually started initially in sports, and one of the reasons that occurred is, is I was rather confused when I was an athlete in high school and college by the lack of objectivity that was being used to address injuries, and in that case, it was my own. And so, you know, thought there must be a better way, so went into coaching and, and eventually went to medical school and learned how physicians treat disease with this idea of, okay, let's take this process, this database, and apply it back into more upstream, beginning with sports, but ultimately everybody as a way of diagnosing what movement deficiencies exist and how can we best improve those for a better outcome? So the way that you guys do that at Sparta Science is using force plates. And I, I, I kind of want you to go into detail about that and how exactly that works and how you're measuring uh, athlete performance just using force plates. Yeah, force plates have been around for, for decades now. And really what they do is they measure the pressure into the ground in, in different axes. Um, and they have a high frequency. And that's the value sometimes over wearables is... You know, it has a thousand hertz frequency and that kind of granularity will gather information from a balance test, a jump test, and then all that big data is really fed into a high powered software, which is where our product comes in and is able to filter and analyze that data using machine learning and some other techniques and provide true insights for each individual based on where risk and performance opportunities lie. So how have advancements in AI and in computer technology really helped you guys with data collection? Yeah, I think when you talk about humans and machine learning, it's been massive. I think that machine learning and AI in healthcare uh, is, is gonna be have the largest effect there just because of the amount of variability that exists. I mean, we all are so different. And so, you know, as a result of that, you know, variance and not only in where we're from, but also how old we are and, and our histories, you know, were we injured, were we sick? Um, all these sorts of um, histories alongside our origin really is a prime candidate for using machine learning, particularly when we start talking about the unsupervised sort. 
So part of the advantage of what you guys have been able to do is have an easily repeatable um, task that, that you're able to then measure so many different things just based on that one easily repeatable task. How did you get your foot in the door? Because the, the, the number of samples that you guys have is really to your advantage, right? Just yeah. the, uh, the, the breadth and width of all of the different um, samples that you've collected across different you know, genders, races, you know, sizes of people and all of that kind of thing. How did you initially get your foot in that door? Yeah, I think the way we approached starting out, our variables was very simple, very similar to how we approached building the company itself. And that a core value of both our technology and the people on our team is reliability. You know, can we trust, you know, our fellow teammate or can we trust the data? So really looking at all this data, identifying which variables were most consistent um, day to day and identifying those reliable variables and then being able to once we started gathering those reliable variables, then we analyzed to see which patterns of those provided meaning. But really having that consistency at its core uh, is important for everybody, particularly when we start talking about uh, compliance or retention. People want to feel that the data that they're looking at, they can trust. Yeah, absolutely. That trust is a massive part of, of what you guys do. And so I, I, I'm, I'm curious, I just want you to explain for the listener how exactly you measure. Um, let's, let's take a picture, for instance. How, how do you use a force plate to determine um, the risk involved for them uh, for a Tommy John surgery or something along those lines? Yeah, I think the the Tommy John or elbow injuries that we're able to predict in baseball players really is the best example of machine learning because we didn't go into the data looking for that pattern. We didn't go in there looking for upper body injuries from a lower body movement. What we did is we put all the data into these models, unlabeled, unsupervised, and what came out was it increased odds for elbow injuries when individuals did not initiate force well on a jump. And so if they don't uh, initiate force well on a jump, then the theory is that that's also occurring out on the mound. And so if they don't start a movement with their legs when they're throwing a baseball, then it has to be generated somewhere else, in this case, likely the upper body. And so that excessive use of the upper body to generate a baseball throw over time will start to wear down that UCL. So if you're looking at a pitcher, you take, um, maybe he he does the 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 force plate once a week or, or more than that, but you're, you're looking throughout the season and you can see the decrease in the uh, in that initial use of force from the legs kind of throughout the season and say that he's had a higher risk of a UCL injury? Yeah, and, and, and that's a good synopsis because the longitudinal aspect, that's what's a big part that's missing, you know, because the, the systems only take about 60 seconds. You can do it frequently enough to see the changes over time, because a lot of screens and testing, it's done once a year, right? Then there, the assumption is, okay, well, I'm only gonna change my body once a year, right? right? Which isn't the case. And so being able to see how the individual responds to fatigue is not, can't be generalized, can't be stereotyped. Everybody responds to loading in a different way. And so looking out over the course of a season, how these pitchers change or how any individual changes is a crucial uh, piece to the prediction. So you then look at, at that data and say that maybe this pitcher is fatigued and suggest rest? Or do you dive into the suggestion for the team or anything along those lines? Or you, do you just stay on the outside and say, this is the data, do with it what you will? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the company at its core actually started as a training facility. And so as a result, the idea of addressing that data with you know, validated prescriptions is at its core. So we never separated the diagnosis and the prescription. We never separated those two out. Um, so really, we've also been able to identify which movements and how much of those movements is effective in improving those force outputs. And the way we've done that is we've taken a, a lens like pharmacology and thinking, okay, what are the different types of movements we're prescribing? How much? What type? All these different things in the same way that pharmacology looks at antibiotics and drugs and that nature. So different sports require different movements, require different expertise from different players. Uh, how did you go into, I suppose you use the same exercises and the same tests across all different sports. So how have you seen the difference in athletes and how have those played out? Yeah, what's, what's interesting is the, the sports are less different than the individual. And by that, I mean, catchers in baseball look very similar to offensive linemen in football, at least in terms of their pattern. They both squat a lot. 
Um, and then when we look at center fielders, they look similar to, to wide receivers in football. So it's the positional and the skill sets that tend to be shared more than the actual sport. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So in your talk earlier, uh, that was phenomenal, by the way, I really, really, really enjoyed it. You used the example of Jeff Withy, the basketball player at Kansas, and talked about how using the test, you were able to not only uh, reduce risk for injury, but also improve performance. Mm. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just flesh out that example a little bit more for the listeners. Yeah, we took a, we, we took a, a lens and looking at these problems as basically solutions that athletes and individuals choose to use um, for the problems they're going to face in activity. Um, and in Jeff Withy's case, you know, not looking at it the same way of not trying to separate out, separate out injury risk and performance and looking at how do we make him more resilient? And in Jeff's case, in a lot of athletes cases, it's how do we get him to play more minutes yeah. more often? And what we found is that that all, because we look at a metric like that, it evaluates, okay, is he good? Coaches aren't going to play guys that suck. Right. And then the other factor is, is he healthy? Right. And so looking at that metric, we found certain force patterns that basketball players that played more minutes tended to gravitate towards. Specifically, they produced less force initially, but more more force, you know, at the outset. And so what what that really means is you've got a tighter rubber band um, that can rebound, that can move faster. And so Kansas was able to prescribe specific movements to actually change that nature of his rubber band to be more explosive and ultimately ended up winning defensive player of the year for the NCAA. So you use minutes played for basketball players. What are some of the other ways that you measure uh, players in other sports? Like maybe a pitcher, is it innings, is it pitches? You know, how, how exactly do you break down some of the, uh, some of the ways of measuring things for other sports? Yeah, we try to look at it from a, both a volume and an intensity standpoint and look at two factors. Um, so if we talk about pitching, it's number of pitches would be a great volume factor. And then intensity would be, okay, what's the average velocity of those pitches, right? Because throwing 100 pitches at 90 miles an hour is very different than 100 pitches at 98 miles an hour, right? And so taking those both into account can separate out um, the actual stress and stimulus based on each individual. Have you broken it down further than that? Like maybe pitches thrown in a particular inning and game state, you know, bases loaded might be a more high stress situation than bases empty or anything like that? Yeah, there's certainly um, specific situations to take the decision trees down to uh, a deeper place. Sure. The challenge becomes there is we haven't found too much significance there yet. And we believe the reason why is in statistics, you can get to this point, what's called overfitting, mm -hmm. where you're predicting randomness more than you're actually predicting outcomes. And so when we've looked at some of those specific situations, you know, there's so much variables involved that we've actually found you haven't found much significance in including those yet, but you know, over time, who knows? We could find other ways. So at the heart of your company, you're, you're a data company. You collect yeah. a lot of data. How, how much resistance have you found when you go into clubhouses or you, you, know, you go into an organization where it's the old school mindset of, you know, I use my eyes, I see my players, I know my players, uh, as opposed to, sure, we'll use this, you know, this data that, that you have. You know, how, how much resistance have you found? Yeah, we actually love the old school because, you know, the old school type sports um, environments, what they're looking for is like, how do I, they're looking for two things, right? How do we keep winning or staying healthy? And the second thing we're looking for is how do I validate my job? And a lot of times what they find is for the most part, it's almost the 80, 20 rule that 80% of what they're finding in Sparta just explains what a good job they're doing, you know, and that's important, but like all of us, nobody bats a thousand. And so in some cases they find insights they may not have thought of, but for the most part, good data, good technologies will validate great practitioners. And so the, the only resistance we tend to find are those that, you know, don't want to be measured and don't want to be validated um, because for fear that, you know, they may not um, continue to evolve with the rest of the society as we get in this big data phase. Yeah, because you'd have to think that people are looking at this as just the next phase. Everyone's seen the movie Moneyball now, yep. but, but now everyone's looking for what's the next step ahead. And if you could prevent injuries before they happen or more easily predict uh, who might be injured in the future, surely that's a huge advantage that teams have to be looking for, either as they look at the draft or potentially signing a player. Is that kind of, do, do teams use that predictively uh, it, when it comes to making a trade or signing a free agent or something along those lines? Yeah, because, and we refer to it as talent identification. And it's a big piece because, you know, any player you sign or recruit, 
ultimately you're recruiting and signing their history, right? And that injury history or disease history comes with them and it's the largest predictor of subsequent events, right? So you really wanna know what their history is and how well they're moving as a result after that injury um, because there's plenty of cases where athletes have had a certain injury, a setback, and they've never been able to return. Or there's other issues where they've, you know, had a setback and they actually come back better, right? And right. so how do we use data to identify which one is which? So you guys are kind of in the, you, you were really, really early on in this, in this trend. Uh, and now there are more people joining the marketplace and more money is kind of coming into this, uh, to looking at the, the, the benefits of measuring health and that sort of thing when it comes to sports. What do you see as next on the horizon for Sparta Science and, and as you move further into this industry? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, one of the things we're always looking to do is improve our accuracy. So right now, the systems that we have in place are, are pretty comprehensive. You know, I think the, the goal is to now that we have this framework is if we're a certain percent accuracy on specific injuries, how do we drive that up? You know, how do we be more accurate with the predictions and the sites with which outcomes are going to occur? And that really, you know, for lack of a, a, a better word, that just comes from more data, but it's got to be more good data. Right. right. And it's got to be data around, OK, medical injury histories or data around exposures. How many times are they exposed to certain events that might cause injury? Um, and that's where we see that future for us is improving that accuracy. Sure. Um, so you mentioned this earlier uh, as part of your talk, but you're not just a sports company. You, you kind of d dove into the, the military aspect of things and also businesses interested in measuring their employees output and that sort of thing. Uh, what's the difference when it comes to measuring some, uh, you know, uh, somebody in the military as opposed to an athlete? Yeah, uh, certainly um, th there's there's some difference, but I think the there's a false assumption that the best physical people play pro sports. And I think the example I used in my talk was, while I might produce more force than most pitchers, I can't throw a strike. Right. Right. So there's a there's has to be an, you know an understanding of the skill, you know of of movement in sports. And in military, there's a massive mental resilience factor. You know, what they may lack in physicality, you know, they're going to gain back in the ability to um, be resilient against any sort of mental challenges, emotional challenges that they face um, being, you know, part of serving your country. Um, so there, there's a lot more similarities than people would realize between those groups. And part of that is because there's other factors. But the physicality across is something we're really excited about because not everybody's a pro athlete. Not everybody's in the special forces. And to really help the most amount of people moving towards fitness and healthcare is just a natural evolution for us. Man, that's really fascinating. You guys are doing awesome stuff. That is Dr. Phil Wagner, CEO and founder of Sparta Science. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Thank you, Tyler. As you can tell, that's some really fascinating work being done by Sparta Science in the world of data analytics and injury prediction and prevention. And coming up next, we're going to talk to another individual who's interested in preventing injuries before they ever happen. And that's Matt Schmidt. He's the CEO of Iron Neck. And what they do is they try to prevent concussions before they ever happen by strengthening the muscles around the head and neck. He says if you're able to slow acceleration upon impact, you can reduce that force of the impact when it comes to whiplash and that sort of thing. Schmidt also draws on his discipline and structure that he was taught in his 10 years in the Air Force in his role as CEO of Iron Neck. I think his insight is really fascinating because you really hear how much he loves football, how much he cares about the people that are playing, and how much he wants to make sure that the next generation of football players are able to enjoy the sport safely without the long-term effects of concussions the way that we're seeing some people deal with today. So without further ado, let me get to my conversation with Matt Schmidt. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Hey, Tyler. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you spent 10 years earlier in your life in the Air Force. And, and I know that that was kind of part of uh, your childhood and part of growing up. Uh, did you always have an interest in kind of following in your father's footsteps and joining the military and joining the Air Force? Or was that something that maybe came later? Uh, I always appreciated what my dad did. Uh, he was in the Air Force for 27 years. Uh, he was an explosive ordnance disposal expert, so bomb squad. Uh, if you look at the, if you've seen the movie Hurt Locker, uh, that's what he did for the Air Force. So I always had a great appreciation for what he did and for the service, um, being part of the military. And I benefited as well. So we moved around a lot um, through my childhood, spent some time in Wichita, Kansas, uh, lived a couple years in Insulik Air Base in Turkey, and then eventually settled in Spokane, where, where I uh, spent 
my high school years and then eventually went over to Central Washington University for, for college. I really didn't know that I was going uh, into the Air Force until, until I was looking at, at colleges. And once I got in, the job market around, around the time was, um, was not great. Uh, I started school in 2003, graduated in 2006, and so it was uh, it was a time where where there's a little uncertainty, and I knew that the military was a was a certainty, and and again having that appreciation and respect for for what my dad did and seeing how the lifestyle was, I was comfortable with that, comfortable with moving around, and uh, was able to was fortunate enough to uh, to earn a scholarship through the Air Force ROTC program at Central Washington. And so that sort of prompted me on my way. How did having that childhood and growing up in that way maybe shape your worldview? You saw different parts of the world. You got to meet different people. And certainly there's, uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to moving around a whole lot. But you certainly gained a perspective, I would think, from uh, living in various parts of the country and the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, every time we moved, it was, uh, there was an aspect of starting over. And I think that made me more comfortable uh, in adapting to new environments, uh, you know, starting from when I was, uh, when I was a child and being, being exposed to different parts of the world, different cultures and meeting new people starting over. Um, that's, I mean, that's, that's life as an, an adult and to learn those skills as a, as a child was, I think, I think shaped me in a lot of ways. Um, obviously there, there are advantages to being in one place, uh, throughout, growing up throughout your your formative years and you know i had uh, i had friends every place that i moved that had lived there and grown up around a friend set and in a comfortable environment and we're happy with that and i i think that's great uh that's not what what i had um but like you said there's advantages and disadvantages to both it was um it, it helped shape me so i've got no regrets whatsoever about about that um that upbringing what what skills do you think you learned in the military that has really helped you now as you run a company and as you are the leader of this organization? Um, you know, h- how do you feel like that has translated over to your job now as CEO of Iron Nick? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, structure, um, a lot of moving pieces, uh, a lot at stake at different times, and you know, so the the structure. There's in in a starting your own business, um, and and I started this business after it had already been, right, I kind of got involved with this business after it had been around for, for a little over two years, but it was, uh, it was put back on the shelf. So we were, we were essentially starting from ground zero when I got involved in 2015. But my experience in the military, uh, again, with the, with the discipline and the structure and having everything kind of projected out and, and, a, and having a plan of attack uh, was important. And, <laughs> Anybody that's that started a business or tried to create something on their own or with a with a small team knows that nothing goes according to plan. And being able to be flexible is also a skill set that that was uh, ingrained in the military. Flexibility is the key to air power. Is what you know it was a it was common phrase uh, through the Air Force, and and that's no different in starting a, a small company and, and growing that. Being able to adapt and adjust with uh, with both positives and negative outcomes. And I skipped over your time at Central Washington a little bit, but you, you played for two years at Central Washington, the uh, alma mater of the great John Kitna. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but how did that experience as a player kind of begin to plant the seeds, or did it begin to plant the seeds for what you're doing today with Iron Neck, just that, that time as a player there as a, I believe you walked onto the football team there at Central Washington. How did that begin to, to, to plant those seeds uh, for what you're doing today with Iron Neck? That's right. I, I was under, undersized. Um, I, I grew up as a huge football fan, starting from when I was uh, three or four years old, and so that was ingrained in me very early on. Uh, loving and appreciating the game of football, team sports in general. I played all sorts of sports growing up: basketball, I snowboarded, played baseball, played soccer. Uh, but I loved football. And going going into Central Washington University. Um, high school days were done. You're never going to get those back, and so you're left with the lasting memories uh, that you, that you that you had uh, playing with your with your boys and your teammates and and the coaches that helped shape you. And I knew that I wanted to get into coaching. And what better way to coach a high school level um, than learn from the next level and experience the next level of that competition? 
So even though I was undersized and didn't get much playing time, I was a practice squad guy. I played for my first two years of college and we had a really good team. It was division two, it was a division two program, but we were nationally ranked in the top 25. Um, I, I believe all four years that I was there and I uh, got, got some really good competition, learned some really good skill skills uh, at the cornerback position. And, and I think that helped me be able to pass along uh, those skills and, and, and concepts when I got into coaching. Um, I coached in, the, in Ellensburg, Washington, where Central Washington University is located my second two years of college. And then once I got into the Air Force, uh, I've co- I coached another three years, one in Korea, which was a unique experience. Uh, a lot of those guys had never played football before. And so it was an opportunity to, to really teach the basics and the fundamentals and, and advance them as much as possible in the, in the game of football. And then I coached again when I was teaching at the Air Force Academy a little bit later on, um, a little bit bigger program, uh, not, not, not big. It was, a, it was a 3A program, but was able to pass along some of the things that I learned at the college level and, and of course, at the high school level um, and through my experiences coaching to, to teach and mentor. And I, that was all very important to me. And then along the way, um, you know, football is a, it's a rough game. It's a physical sport and saw my share, share of injuries, uh, saw my share of concussions, experienced my share of concussions when I was a player. And so having firsthand experience of those things and then being exposed to Iron Neck uh, through my time as an instructor at the Air Force Academy, it all just seemed to make sense. I, I had an entrepreneurial um, mindset that that started uh, at a young age, was solidified during my time uh, at the University of Texas MBA program, and then enhanced when I was teaching a course, a capstone course called Technological Innovation in the Management Department at the Air Force Academy. And taking students through um, business case competitions and, and feasibility analysis and, and learning what it means to put together a plan of a business, whether or not it's feasible, and then how to execute those things. It really got me fired up. And then when I was introduced to Iron Neck, uh, which happened to be the niece of the inventor was in, in my class uh, at the Air Force Academy, I reached out to him right away. I knew that, that Iron Neck had, a, had the potential to help shape the game uh, and not just football, but all sports. And again, relying on my background, seeing, seeing injuries firsthand, but then also having an appreciation and love for the game of sports and contact sports and team sports. Um, I thought it was important to get involved and, and hopefully shape athletics in general at every level and, and make sports as safe as possible for all athletes. So you can really hear your love and passion for football come through just when I listen to you talk. It's 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 evident. Um, and the issue of concussions is a fairly divisive one at times amongst the football community, whether they're talking about uh, rules changes or you know um, just the way that the game is approaching concussions these days. I'm, I'm just wondering about how you feel when you see some of these debates and these arguments about concussions um, and some of the ways that they're that that the injuries themselves are being approached by either talking heads on TV or, you know, referees in a game or something along those lines. There are different mentalities um, um, around ways to reduce the risk. Um, of course, rule changes are an important factor. Uh, you've, you've seen that in football in particular with kickoffs being moved up, touchbacks being basically automatic because uh, that's, that's the most um, concussed play in the sport of football. And you've seen, Equipment changes. Uh, helmets over the past 20 years in football have improved dramatically. Uh, there is some debate on whether or not helmets are inherently designed to reduce concussion risk. I think there's definitely some benefit to having a better helmet. I mean, you look at look at helmets that were used in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They were rudimentary, and now there's so much technology going into helmets, uh, including sensors that that track head acceleration, not just the sensors, but the padding and the, the way that the shell of the helmet is created. There's some, some, some very innovative things going on uh, in the helmets themselves. And of course, assessing, diagnosing, and treating concussions has improved tremendously over the past 15 years. Before, 
it was, okay, we think somebody had a concussion. Did they lose consciousness or not? And then this is how we treat them. Um, there was not, not really a protocol for, for a return to play. Um, and now, as you know, that that, that is significantly changed. Uh, but, but one of the most under, um, understood aspects of concussion prevention or risk reduction is the aspect of neck training and neck strengthening. And it makes sense when you look at it from the concept of, whip, of whiplash. If you're able to slow head acceleration upon impact, whether that's a head-to-head -head collision or a body part to a head collision or the body falling to the ground and the head hitting the ground at a high rate of force, you're able to slow that head down. You're able to reduce the acceleration and the force of the impact. And, and that's what we're trying to educate based on research and the viability of the iron neck and other neck training methods. We want people to know that there is a proactive solution. Neck training is not going to eliminate all concussions, but it does scientifically reduce the risk of concussions. Yeah, and I think that's what's really interesting about what you're doing is the the proactive nature of the approach. You know, a lot of the focus has been, like you mentioned, on, you know, rule changes to the game to prevent concussions, and I think that's good, you know, and then, um, you know, uh, uh, you know how athletes are treated once they have a concussion, you know, better recognition of what concussions are. But that's what's really interesting about what, what Iron Neck is doing and what you guys are doing is that uh, it's on the front end. It's, it's helping prevent them uh, from initially taking place, and, and the way that CTE is becoming a bigger and bigger issue that we're seeing, um, you know, with major examples like what happened with Junior Seau, Mike Webster, and other players. Uh, you could even go so far as to say that that what you guys are doing at Iron Neck could also potentially be down the road saving lives. Uh, and I, I think that's that's a really cool aspect of you know of what you guys are doing. And as awareness of the concussion issue has increased, have you seen increased? Uh, interest across the board. Has there been a, a swell of interest in, in what you're doing and in, in, in the uh, the work of Iron Neck? Absolutely. I mean, like like I said, when Mike invented this thing uh, back in 2012, he would go to strength coaching conferences and he went to the NFL Combine, and there was certainly some interest uh, amongst some some uh, some early thought leaders and some people that were willing to take a chance. But at the same time, people would walk by and they'd see this thing and they'd laugh. They dismiss the concept uh, right away, and it, it just it felt like to him it was too early. It was uh, it was ahead of its time. It was on the early stages of a lot of the changes that were being made around football and around sports in general. And over the past couple of years, since we reinvigorated and, and redesigned the Iron Neck um, product, we've noticed more professional teams. Uh, across NFL, NHL, MLB, and international rugby in particular, become more adaptive. And that's worked its way down through college and high school, and there are even some athletic directors implementing Iron Neck in middle schools. So uh, over the past just three years, the adoption has increased dramatically, and and we are, we're, we're happy and proud uh, to be a part of that um, but but we know that there's there's still a long way to go, uh, in particular female sports. If you look at female neck strength compared to male neck strength, it's half. So male neck strength, uh, you know, throw, throw a number out. It's uh, you know, linear flexion is 50 pounds. Female female linear flexion is 25 pounds. And across the board, rotational strength, side to side. Uh, front and back, the neck strength is just half amongst females. And then you look at concussion rates. And when comparing male sports to female sports, females suffer 85% more concussions than male athletes in similar or comparable sports. And that's across diving, basketball, baseball, softball, soccer, lacrosse, uh, you name it, uh, a sport where girls and boys both play. The concussion rate among female athletes is nearly double what male athletes are. So that is a mission uh, that we have taken on is educating the entire populace and the entire landscape of sports and athletics and not just being honed in on football, although that is a big uh, influencer amongst other sports. I think there's, there's some things that football 
players and organizations have been doing around net training for a longer time. And so it's a little bit easier to get adoption amongst that population. But if you look at women's soccer, there's almost no net training that's being done in the majority of programs. And that is one of the highest concussed sports in particular, again, for female athletes. That's really interesting. And you mentioned the word education in there. And I wonder how, um, how much resistance you still face. You know, you mentioned how in the early days, uh, you know, people would walk by a booth and laugh or something like that. Um, and, and I wonder just how much uh, of that you still run into of people, you know, just with the old school mentality of, you know, you rub dirt on it, you walk away and you're going to be fine type of attitude. Uh, how much of that do you still come up against? I think the rub the dirt on it or tape an aspirin to it is is sort of going away in a lot of aspects, uh, especially at, at youth sports, so middle school and high school. But uh, the education piece is still huge. It's it's hard to get education out to to this vast group of of stakeholders, and that that's the athletes themselves, that's parents, that's the sport coach, the strength coach, the athletic trainer, the athletic director. And, and booster clubs. And so we, we try very, very hard to get that message out. Um, it's, it's, it can be sometimes perceived as, um, as I don't know, um, I guess selfish because we do sell a neck training product, but really our goal is, is even if somebody doesn't buy an iron neck, as long as they are actively participating in neck strengthening and neck training protocols, we're happy. Absolutely. Uh, where can people go if they want to find more information on Iron Neck and what you guys are doing? Our website is www.iron-neck.com. And uh, we've got a, a host of resources. We've got a neck training overview that's a, a six-page document that's a, a consolidation of research over the past uh, five to ten years around the benefits of training the neck uh, for different sports. It's got benefits for training and strengthening the neck and spine for non-athletes as well. And so that's something we've seen grow over the past year and a half or two years is that even non-athletes or former athletes that are experiencing posture issues or uh, the effects of tech neck or text neck or uh, stiffness in the neck or whiplash uh, post motor vehicle accident or something like that, or even amongst the the older population, people in their in their 50s, 60 years or older, that are having uh, disc issues or uh, you know disc generation, and so so we've got a host of research around those different applications and benefits for neck training and uh, and spine training on our website. Excellent. That is Matt Schmidt, CEO of Iron Neck. Matt, thank you so much for the time today here for the uh, Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. That is going to do it for this week's episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Phil Wagner and to Matt Schmidt, my two guests today. Thank you also to T.C. Riley for joining me for that news and analysis section there at the beginning of the podcast. Coming up this week, obviously, it's Thanksgiving, so a bunch of sports is going to be on. You've got Michigan, Ohio State. You've got Auburn, Alabama. You've got the Thanksgiving Day games in the NFL. So much going on in the world of sports and entertainment, and I can't wait to recap so much of it next week with you uh, back here on the Sports and Entertainment Podcast from Market Scale. But until then, I'm Tyler Kern, your host of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Have a great week.